Some of you know that at one time I worked on what was called a Christian radio station. Having come from a background in secular radio, when God by His grace saved me, wow, what a perfect thought to go to work for a Christian radio station. Well, it was not so Christian as I had hoped. And all through that time that I worked there, there were a number of problems. And one of them was the fact that the director or the manager of the station was a man who was part of a denomination. And in fact, some people would even call it a cult. But it was a denomination which believed that it was possible for Christians to attain to sinless perfection. They believed that if you follow the Bible hard enough, strong enough, pray enough, that you could become sinless and you no longer sinned. In fact, with this guy, he thought that he hadn't sinned in like 20 years. He was an older man, and he thought, well, I haven't sinned in 20 years. Can you imagine what that's like? He could never make, yes, some of you probably work for guys like that, but, but he thought that he could never make a mistake. And even though I would sit there and see some of the things that he was making in managerial positions, such as bringing in men to speak, on a Christian radio station that weren't even saved and who manifested no sound theological doctrine. But you could not tell him that because that would mean he made a mistake or a sin. And I don't sin. So it's not possible for me to be wrong. It was quite a time, and as I said, it was a little bit difficult at times to work in that environment. But there's a, a lot of people that belong to that denomination, some whose names you would know. But the fact is, that is just not a biblical position. It is not a proper biblical understanding. So what I would like to do today in our continuing study on the fundamentals of forgiveness is to look at that just a bit today and to see what Christians are really like. You know that we have been looking through only so far the first major heading called the essence of forgiveness. And we dealt first with the source of our need for forgiveness. And the source of our need for forgiveness is our sin. Man from the garden had fallen in sin. And every man since has had the sin of Adam imputed to him. Therefore, every man is a sinner. And the greatest need of mankind is not for health or for wealth. But when Jesus came and he dealt with men, he said, your sin." are forgiven. More than healing, more than raising from the dead, Jesus said, your sins need to be forgiven. That's the source of our need for forgiveness. And we're currently looking at that sin which needs to be forgiven. And here we've been considering the biblical definition of of sin. And we saw from 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4 that sin is lawlessness. It is a breaking of the law. And we went and we showed that John was speaking about the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Sin is a breaking of God's law given in the Ten Commandments. And when you break the commandments, that's sin. We also went to look at the epistle of James, chapter 4, where the writer says that doing the wrong thing, when you know to do the right thing, and you do the wrong thing, 
That is sin. And as you recall, it came in the context of even the church and our dealings with one another and the tongue, bridling the tongue. You know it's wrong to cause dissension, and yet people in churches today still do it. And most recently, we have studied and we're looking at Romans chapter 14, and don't turn there yet, but we're looking at Romans chapter 14 and verse 23, where the apostle says that whatever is not of faith is sin. And I thought it would be a good idea to consider briefly what faith really is. So two weeks ago, we considered from Hebrews chapter 11, the definition of faith where we saw that faith, when you have genuine and real faith, that that faith is a belief, an absolute certainty of the things of God. We believe it. It is the assurance of things hoped for. Confidence in God's Word. That's faith. Well, where do you get that faith? That's the question. And that's why I'm going to ask you to turn again, just briefly, to Ephesians chapter 2 as we review what we saw here last Lord's Day. Ephesians chapter 2, where do we get faith? In this text we saw beginning in verse 1, that we are all dead in our trespasses and in our sins. We are all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And I remind you again of that picture that we saw from Pilgrim's Progress, showing Bunyan's character Christian with that ugly, horrible burden of sin on his back. And when you come to understand yourself before God, that sin will weigh upon you. When you understand that you are dead in your trespasses and in your sins, it will become a burden and you will cry, What can I do to relieve myself of such a burden? And the answer comes from this text. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Jesus, in Christ Jesus. So we've got this great burden of sin, and there's nothing we can do about it because we are dead. But God, in His mercy, even when we were dead, raises us up and saves us from that sin, removes that burden from our back. And what do we then get? Verse 8, For grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Genuine faith, biblical faith, Actual faith in God and a belief that has in its root the the belief of all that God has given in the Scriptures, all that God has taught in, in the Scriptures, all that Christ has done. That kind of faith only comes from God. It is a gift of God. My wife and I were engaged in a discussion yesterday morning as uh, on the following the news, there was this uh, science program geared towards your children. A science program where they're showing children that the earth is billions of years old. And that the earth actually is a piece of a star and 
floated off into space and became this planet. And that men, as you know, after billions of years, evolved into what we are today. Just telling your kids that. Billions of years old. Not a creator God who made the earth in a day. Not a creator God who created man on the sixth day. Not an earth that is only about 6,000 years old, but billions of years old because they want to disprove the creator God. And so my wife turns to me and said, you know, it is very hard to believe that God created everything the way he did and that God controls everything the way he does and that every cloud that goes through the sky, every wave that ripples on the Gulf of Mexico, every piece of dust that comes down from heaven, God knows it all. As creator, it is hard to believe that. And how is it that you do believe that? By the faith that He has given you. It does take faith. And yet we look at the scriptures and we see what He has given and we see what He was done, has done and we say, I do believe in all that God has done. I do believe in who God is as the true God. And that comes from faith. Now, with that in mind, turn over to Romans chapter 14. Just back a few pages. Romans chapter 14. And looking down here, we see in verse 23 towards the end of verse 23, which is the last verse of the chapter. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. So we've seen that sin is lawlessness, that sin is doing the wrong thing, and now here, whatever is not of faith is sin, or what I have called the violation of sin. The violation of sin. Now let's see what Paul is talking about. The context here is that of a church, and there is a dispute in the church. So look back to verse 1 of chapter 14. And Paul is addressing this dispute. I'm not going to take a whole lot of time to go into this, because we've already touched on it, and I just want to remind you, verse 1, Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. And as you go down, he continues to deal with some who are having disputes over celebrating certain days and those who don't celebrate certain days. So then you come down to verse 23, and he says, But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. So that's the context. The context is basically in eating or not eating. Weaker brothers eat vegetables. The rest of us eat meat and vegetables and fruit and the other parts of God's creation for us. That is the context. Maintaining love between the brethren. So we don't judge and we don't condemn if someone doesn't want to eat the things the way we eat. Today, in many churches, there are disputes over such things as not so much eating meat, although some might. I can remember back in my early days of Christianity that there were some who had disputes over whether you should take certain kinds of vitamins. And there was a big push in the church from some 
to eat or to take vitamins. And so if you don't take these vitamins, you're not spiritual. There were some who had a big push about going to the chiropractor. And you see, going to the chiropractor not only keeps you, your body straight, it also helps your mind. So if you're not going to the chiropractor, you're sinning against God. And there are some today who teach, and this is a big one today, about educating your children. That you should never allow your children to go to a school, particularly and especially a public school. If you send your child to a public school, you are sinning against God. You should only homeschool. And that has been dividing churches all around America. And this is sort of that thing that Paul is addressing here. However, the last part of verse 23 goes way beyond that. When he says, whatever is not from faith is sin, that is what we call a general biblical principle. It is not only applicable in a dispute within a church, as this one is from, it is applicable in any and all circumstances of your life in the church in the family, or in work, or in your life. It is a general biblical principle. And the principle is, whatever you do, contrary to faith, the faith that you've been given by God, that is sin. Whatever you do that is contrary to that Biblical faith given to you by God, that is sin. Now, think about it. Even though you and I, as Christians, have been given so much by God, He has blessed us with every blessing. Now, we looked at Ephesians chapter 2. If we had looked at Ephesians chapter 1, that's what he says. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And that can be summarized in the word faith. Blessed us with a faith that believes that He is God. That He is Creator God. And that He did create the earth. It did not happen by chance or by accident or by a star exploding billions of years ago. We have been given this great gift of faith by God that has caused us to believe that He is the Creator. That He is true God. And that He is the one who cares for us and sustains us. And more particularly, He is the God who in time, according to His promise, sent His Son Jesus, who really did come, who really did live a spotless, sinless life, being born of a virgin, without that sin of Adam imputed to Him, because He was not of Adam's race. That's why the virgin birth was imperative. He was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, was a sinless man. He was God and man, the true God, the true man. Hypostatic union there among men, lived this life. And then gave his life on the cross for our sins, for the sins of every single one of his people. He did that. And by faith, we believe that. That's why when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we have the bread and the cup, the two elements, the broken body and the shed blood. We don't believe that they become anything other than what they are, symbols of His body and symbols of His shed blood, but we hold them as tangible reminders because we are only men and we need to be reminded tangibly, really, as real as this bread is real, Jesus' body was real. And as real as this bread is broken, Jesus' body was broken. 
And as real as this cup contains real juice, Jesus really shed his blood. We believe it by faith. And that's, we celebrate it. We celebrate his atoning death in the Lord's Supper. Because by faith, we believe it. We believe all of this. We believe in the grace of God. We believe in heaven and we believe in hell. This is what Paul is stressing in the first part of the verse. He who doubts is condemned. We don't doubt. We should not doubt. We hold firmly to the things that we find in the scriptures and the things that God has given to us in the scriptures. Remember what we saw in James? We know better because we know God. We know better. We know these things are true. We know these things are real. We have faith and we believe. Nevertheless, we all sin. Even though we know this, even though we have this great gift of faith, we are all still flesh we are all still tempted and we all still sin and that's why it may be said that if possible our sin is worse than an unbelievers because we have been given faith And we know better. And we know all that God has done. And we still sin against such light. We are all still sinners. I remind you again of what Jesus said. To whom much has been given, much will be required and that comes in the context of greater judgment against your sin and my sin. As we have been given so much by God, and we know it. You know, the people that are driving by, they've been given a lot too. But they don't even know that it comes from God. They don't even care that it comes from God. They're just going down the road on their way. You know better. You know it because you have been given faith. And when you turn away from that light, when you disregard that great grace that God has bestowed upon you, when you, like Peter, deny Christ and sin, what a great sin it is. For we sin against light. And whatever, whatever is not according to that faith, not according to the way of God, not according to the Scriptures, That is sin. Whatever is contrary to his word, that is sin. And we all do it. We all know those things that we are are constantly doing in our lives that are contrary to all that we know about God and his word and faith and grace and mercy. What has our Savior done for us so much? And yet at times, we are tempted and we fall. The looks when we should not look. The lust when we should not lust. The stealing when we take time from our work. The gossip that goes on between people. All of these things we all do. Even though we have great faith and love to God, we all still fall. The words spoken in anger that we know bring dishonor to God. We all are guilty 
I worked, some of you know, long after the radio station, I worked in a rather large, in fact, one of the largest in the country's, sanitary landfill, which is a sanitary name for a dump. But it was a sanitary landfill. And I ran heavy equipment and was actually engaged in the management of the place after a while. And so in the course of my duties day by day, I would have um, occasion to go through a huge shop where all this huge equipment would be worked on from time to time. And from all of this equipment being worked on, there would occasionally be transmission oil or oil or grease that would spill on the ground or on the floor of the shop. And there was a man who worked there who claimed to be a Christian who uh, went to actually uh, a church that I attended for a while. And uh, he worked at the uh, landfill. And one day he's walking into the shop and hits one of these things. I think it was transmission oil. Goes up in the air and comes flying down. And goes, oh, blank. And cursed. The only thing anybody ever remembered of that man was that incident. He could have lived a godly Christian life for 10 years in front of those mechanics. But all they remembered was that curse. We all think of the times when we get angry, make gestures, say things we wish we didn't, and we know that they dishonor our Savior, and we think to ourselves and say, Oh, would that I could stop! Would that I could be free of this sin and live for the God that I know to be true in the Scriptures because I know the faith that He's given. Would that I could live a sinless life and honor my Savior. That's the sentiment of the very man who wrote this book. Look back to chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Here's the heart of the Apostle Paul. He's speaking about the law. And he says in verse 14 that I know that the law is spiritual, but I am flesh, sold into bondage to sin. He knows that he is a sinner, a flesh and blood sinner. He knows that he's a sinner, sold into the bondage of sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. That's what I was just talking about. I don't want to sin, God. But the temptation comes, and sadly I give in. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. I want to do what is right. And every Christian will say that. Every real Christian will say continually, I want to do what is right. I want to do what pleases my God. I always want to do what is right according to that faith that God has given me, according to the things I have learned in the Scriptures. I always want to do what is right, but I don't. The willing is in me, but the doing is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil I do not want. 
But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but the sin that dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Listen, just to to sum this up, Paul is saying, I love God. I love God's law. Remember what sin is from 1 John 3, 4. Sin is lawlessness, a breaking of the law. Paul is saying, I love the law of God. I want to keep the law of God. In other words, I don't want to sin, but I am flesh. And my flesh is constantly tempted. And at times I do the very thing that I hate. And so there is this war raging in me. The spiritual good that comes from that faith that God has given you and the evil of the world that would tempt you to sin. We're talking about sanctification here in the Christian life. As you go on in your life as a Christian, you battle and you fight against the sins that so easily beset you. And the longer you walk with Christ, the more you realize how many sins are sins. So the battle doesn't stop. It doesn't get any easier. We keep battling. We keep fighting against sin. And we say with the Apostle Paul, would that I could be without sin. But I am only a man. I am only flesh. Would that I could always live consistent with the teaching of the Word of God. But I am only a man. And I fail. And I want to remind you of this text. That Jesus said that God knows our frame. Remember this text where the scripture says that God knows your frame that you are but dust. God knows who you are. God knows that you're but dust. He knows that you're flesh. He knows our propensity to sin. But still we battle. We fight the war. We battle against the sin that is in us. We still battle on. Sometimes we may lose and it grieves us but we still battle against sin. Do you know the difference between a saved man and a lost man? When a saved man sins, it grieves his heart because he knows he dishonors God. When a lost man sins, he doesn't care. In many cases, he doesn't care who it affects. He doesn't care what damage it causes. He just doesn't care. Now, sometimes they may have a twinge of conscience because God put a conscience in everyone. But when a Christian sins, it brings grief to our hearts and grief to God. And we know it. And that's why it brings grief to us. So we keep battling. One of my dear pastors used to say often and it's something that I would repeat because it's a good thing yes we battle against sin and sometimes we fall and sometimes we lose the battle but we never sign a peace treaty with sin we never sign a peace treaty with sin we're always fighting against it We're always battling against it. And that's what Paul is talking about here in Romans 7. That war that is waging, we're always fighting against sin. 
So I say to you this morning here that that's what sin is. That's the the definition of sin. It is lawlessness, a breaking of the law. It is doing something against what you know is right and you don't do the right thing and do the wrong thing. And in the case of Christians, when you understand and have the the truth of God's word and the, the faith that he has given you and you still sin against that faith, that's sin. When you do things against that faith, it is sin. When you go contrary to the teaching of the word of God and the faith that he has put in you, that is sin. Now, what I want to do is to go from here and to address a few other points that come from this definition of sin and open up a little more of this in terms of practical application. Most of it will be for us as Christians, but not exclusively. The first thing I want to see is, as we move from the biblical definition of sin, is to turn to consider now the biblical reality of sin. The biblical reality of sin. And the first point I want to stress here is that all men are sinners. All men are sinners. Now, I know that we've touched on this a lot, so I'm not going to go over it much. You've heard me say it in the definition of sin, and and we've looked at it quite a bit and pointed it out along the way that most most of you know and most of you have heard that the lost are sinners and that it is their very sin that will condemn them before God. And if you sit here this morning and you do not have Christ and you think you're a good person, you are deceived. Look back just a few pages in Romans to Romans chapter 3, text that we dealt with a little bit last Lord's Day, as he says in Romans chapter 3 and in verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. All of these things testify against you and against any who would teach that man is basically good. And all he needs to do is just try a little harder and be a little better. And the teaching that says all good people will go to heaven and only bad people will go to hell. The fact of the matter is there are no good people. All men are sinners. And your sin is open for God to see. This is the biblical reality of sin, that all men are sinners. However, let me say this, it is also wrong to think that once you become a Christian, you never sin. Because as we have been seeing, all Christians are still sinners. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 1, please. 1 John chapter 1. That religion, that denomination that I spoke of a little while ago that my former boss belonged to, they're wrong. (laughs) They err because they do not know the Scriptures. Here is the Apostle John speaking to Christians. And he says in verse 8, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Look at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Don't say that Christians don't sin. They do. Now, the whole epistle of John deals a lot about the love of God and not sinning and 
how we have an advocate when we do sin. But the only thing I want for us to see from this text right now is that we are all sinners, even in churches. We have a great church. We don't have divisions, factions. We don't have people rising up, causing dissension here or there. But some churches aren't like that. Some churches have even Christians, well-meaning, that cause problems and dissension. So Christians do sin. We just read from the book of Romans. Well, think of the book of Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Paul had to address all kinds of sins in the churches. That's why he wrote so much. He had two two books to Corinthians. They were in big trouble. The book of Galatians, when you read Galatians, he had nothing good to say to the church in Galatia. It was all dealing with their sin and their waywardness. And it's true that some of them may have been lost, but still there were Christians that he was addressing. And so John here says, if you say that you are sinless, you are a liar. Christians succumb to temptation. Christians sin. Now, the next point. First point is that all men are sinners, lost and saved, just as we saw from Romans 14, verse 23. What we do against faith is sin. But the next point is that this does not give license to sin. That's the battle I was just talking about. Okay, I've said we're all sinners, and you could go, well, you see that? We're all sinners. I'm just like the next guy. He sins, I sin, she sins, we sin, we all sin. So let's just give up. No, that is not what we are to do. Christians are not to give up. Christians are to deal with their sin. And one way Christians will deal with their sin immediately is right here in our text. Verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, this is 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he forgives us of our unrighteousness. But this is what a Christian will do. And you know this because you're, those of you who are Christians know this. That when, if you may sin, if you fall into sin, you repent. And part of that is to confess to God, Oh God, forgive me for that sin. Forgive me for that sin. Now, do you know what John is talking about here? John, he says, well, well, wait a minute. Aren't we already cleansed from all unrighteousness when we're saved? I want to show you what he's talking about. Go back to John's gospel. The gospel of John and chapter 13. John's gospel, chapter 13. Page 84. In the Pew Bible. Here is John's account of the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper. And I want you to see what he deals with, what he says, beginning in verse 5. Then he, that is Jesus, poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which, with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. What's going on? They've come to this home 
And part of the tradition was that when you came to a home, your feet would be washed when you entered into the home so that your feet would be clean. You'll see why in a moment. So Jesus is doing that to the disciples. And he comes to Peter. In verse 8, Peter says to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Now you know that Peter's being righteous. Peter's excited and Peter says, God, I'm not worthy for you to wash my feet. He's already said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. I don't want God washing my feet. So he said, no, God, may it never be. You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered and said to him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. In other words, I have to wash your feet. Otherwise, you have no part with me. But then Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Because I want to be a part of you. I want to be in your kingdom. So don't only wash my feet, wash my hands and wash my head. In other words, wash all of me. Wash all of me. But now look at the response of Jesus. And this is what John is talking about in 1 John. I'm sorry if it's confusing, but one's a gospel and one's an epistle. We're in the gospel right now, which is in the beginning of the New Testament, closer to the beginning. And he says in verse 10, Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew when he's talking about Judas. But you hear what he's saying? Once you have been bathed, you don't need to be bathed again. You're completely clean except for your feet. Now, in earthly terms, what he's talking about is that they would occasionally go to a bathhouse and be bathed completely. But where did they live? First century Palestine. What were the roads like? Dust and dirt. They wore sandals. So as they were bathed, yet as soon as they started walking down the road, their feet would get dirty and dusty. Not the rest of them, but their feet would get dirty and dusty. So when they came to a house... It was the tradition that they would wash their feet. And so what Jesus is saying to them, the bathing is being cleansed of your sin. That you are forgiven of your sins when you are saved by the grace of God. Yet all of us still walk in the world. We are still living among and walking among this dirty world. So our feet still get dirty and we must confess our sins. And when we confess our sins, what did John say in 1 John? You are cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we as Christians sin, but that doesn't give us license To keep sinning, we deal with our sin. And one of the ways that we deal with our sin is to confess our sins and be cleansed of all unrighteousness before God. Having our feet cleaned again by the Savior Himself. This is the picture that God gives to us here. Now, it is not only this text that I would like for you to consider. Not only will we confess our sins, but the Christian, the true Christian, will strive to mortify our sins. You know what it means to mortify a sin? Mortal, mortify, to put to death. Look at Romans chapter 8 in your Bibles. Romans chapter 8. I hope to um, do an entire series here one day. So we can't spend too much time at this, and I can only kind of touch the surface of it. But Romans chapter 8, if you would please look at verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. 
For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body. You see that? Putting to death the deeds of the body. And these are the deeds that he was just speaking about in Romans chapter 7. That which I would not do, you are to strive to put them to death. That's mortifying your sin. John Owen has almost an entire volume dealing with this, putting to death the mortification of sin. And that's what the Christian is to strive to do. We are obligated as Christians to live according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. Therefore, when we're walking by the Spirit, we are to put to death the deeds of the flesh, striving to live by the Spirit. Verse 14, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry, Abba, Father. When we're saved, God's our Abba, Daddy, Father. And we therefore live according to the Spirit, to His glory. And part of that means that we are striving to put away or to kill or to mortify the deeds of the flesh. So although we are all still sinners, Christians will strive for holiness. Striving and seeking to mortify the deeds of the flesh. Okay? No license to sin. All are sinners, but that doesn't give you a license to sin. And the last thing I want to mention just briefly We are striving for holiness. We are seeking to mortify our sins. But that should not mitigate our joy in Christ. You know what? One of the problems that so many people have when they realize that they're sinners and they need to be battling against sin, and this happens a lot in Reformed churches, because we deal with sin a lot, because we call sin, sin, and we need to deal with it, so many people then for lose all their joy. And they become like monks who go around greeting one another by saying with their heads bowed low, Brother, we must die. And the correct response from the monk going the other way would be, Yes, brother, we must die. That doesn't sound like very much fun. Where's the joy in that? I've just talked to you for weeks about faith in Christ and the joy that it should bring to you once you are saved from that burden of your sin. Remember that picture of Christian once the burden is gone. He's leaping in the air. He's free from the bondage of sin. He's excited. He's joyful. Why does that then turn to brother We must die. It shouldn't. Of all people in the world, you should have genuine and real joy. Because of all people in the world, you know your sins, which are many, are forgiven. That's the key. They're no longer judging you. You have been saved. Saved from what? Saved from your sin. Saved from the judgment of God. Saved from the condemnation of God against those sins. So, though we battle against sin, though we mortify sin, we still have joy in our Savior. Joy in Christ. I met with one this past week who is a, uh, let's say, in a 
ultra-reformed church. And sometimes there's very little joy there. I don't want any part of it. I don't want to be the frozen chosen. I want to know the doctrines of grace. And I want to know the grace of the doctrines. I want joy. I want fun. Can I say that as a Christian? Yes. Do you know what men accuse Jesus of? You know what the scribes and the Pharisees accused Jesus of? They called him a glutton and a wine-bibber. You remember that? Why did they do that? Because, as he says himself, he did come eating and drinking. These people who think that uh, Jesus didn't drink wine don't know the Bible. He ate and he drank the food of the day. Why? He was enjoying his own creation. He's the creator of it. He created food and now gave us the right to eat bacon, ribs, steaks. But seriously, Jesus enjoyed his own creation. And they were mocking him for doing it. Don't think in your heads that Jesus never laughed. That is an unbiblical view of Jesus. Because, as I said a little while ago, Jesus was true God, yes, but he was also true man. What normal, true man never laughs? Nobody is like that. He laughed when he was a baby, and I can assure you that even in the camaraderie of his disciples, there were occasions when Jesus laughed. I want to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes, just after Proverbs. Some of you are reading this, and you're reading through the Bible right now. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. My brother pointed this out to me just this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, you find Psalms, go a little further into the Proverbs, and just after Proverbs 31, you'll find Ecclesiastes, and then you come to chapter 2, and we read in verse 24, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that is from the hand of God, for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him of all people those who have him should know real enjoyment and to gather together to eat or to have a birthday cake to swim in a pool is not a sin Christians have Real enjoyment. Because Christians know God. And the faith that we have from God gives us peace. That our sins are forgiven. And that when we die, we will go to be with Him. That's where real joy comes from. Martin Luther is quoted as saying, You have as much laughter as you have faith. Imagine that. You have as much laughter as you have faith. Luther also said, if I'm not allowed to laugh in heaven, I don't want to go there. I'm not so sure about that. But that's what Luther said. The Christian life is not a life of ease. It is a battle against sin, against the world, against the devil. It is a battle to remain holy and righteous and godly. It is not a life of ease. However, the Christian life is and should be also a life of joy. As we serve Jesus and as we know our sins forgiven and that we will be with him throughout eternity, that should 
bring us immeasurable joy. Fill our hearts with gladness because we know Him. Some of you here today need to cry out to God for mercy and that He would give you faith that you would know true and lasting joy. Yes, it'll be a battle, but it's a joyful one. You know, one of the greatest parts of making that battle joyful is the fellowship of the brethren. When you're in a place where the Christians are Christians and where God is God and we understand what we have to do, that's why we love coming to church. We don't dread it. We look forward to it. We love it. We fellowship among one another in joy as we fight the fight for Christ. Let's pray.